All right, so Isaiah 36 is where we are today. And it is so good to be children of the king, like Andrew was saying, that we do have a, a king. He is our commander. He is our master. But he's not just a master. It's not some impersonal relationship. He's also our father. He, he loves us with an everlasting love. Earthly kings, you think about how they would jealously guard the future of their children because they wanted to preserve their line. And they were very protective of their heir because they knew that they would follow them as a ruler. And we are co-heirs with Christ. So we're not some detached subject of the king. No, we're a fellow heir with Christ, with the love that God lavished upon Christ, he has lavished upon us. The protection and the provision, the wisdom he gives us. And so God does reserve the right to command, and he has authority over all. But there's also those pictures of a shepherd leading his sheep gently, a father hugging his son, a hen protecting her brood under her wings, like a compassionate stranger who picks up someone from the ground when they were dead, near death, and a savior who stoops to wash our dirty feet. This is These are the pictures that we have of God's relationship with us, that he has humbled himself, he has given all so that we could live and we could know him. So not an impersonal king only, with the power of a king, but also our father. And he has this perfect balance. He strikes it between righteousness and love and mercy. As us as parents, for those of you who are parents or who are in any position of authority or a role in a business, it's hard to strike that balance between discipline and desires to, to show love to other people and how that works out. But God, he nails it. So let's pray and we will jump in. Father, thank you so much for your word, that you are our Father, that you are our King, that you are in control, that nothing escapes you. You don't need us, but you love us, and you desire us, and you you bid us to come today and hear you speak. And Lord, I pray that you would still our hearts before you, that we would hear your voice, we would understand your word, and that we would respond in obedience to what you're saying. We'd take confidence in you, Lord, not in ourselves, and we would praise you with our whole hearts. We'd rejoice uh, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty because of your promises and because you are good. Bless the children too, Lord, as they read your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 36, and there's this four-chapter interlude. If you've been traveling with us, it's a bit different than what we've been reading. Uh, we've been reading of prophecies leading up to this moment, and after these four chapters, it goes back to a more prophetic, poetic style. But during the next weeks, we'll see how this played out between the Assyrians and the people of Jerusalem with King Hezekiah. So King Hezekiah, he's in, he's in rule. It's believed this passage was written first. There's additional passages you can read in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles 32. Those were written after this uh, passage. It's so important that we realize the Bible is much more than just, it's not a textbook to be studied. It's more than a historical narrative. It is a truth that's meant to be applied to our lives today. It's fully applicable. It's relevant. 
And what's been written, the Bible says, is for our learning, so that we can walk in the truth. We can know God, because truly the Bible is about God and his dealings with men, his desire to be known and to be feared. We learn today that no matter how fierce or impossible, fierce the enemy or impossible the battle, God is able. He is valiant. He will fight for his people. We have no shortage of difficulties in this life. And the devil, he wants us, and the world too, just wants us to quit. The world doesn't want us to fight. The world wants us to give up, to just assume the mold that the world and the wisdom of the world what the world believes, that's what the world wants us to do too. But we cannot be lured away from a walk of faith, following Christ, being obedient to him, knowing that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us. So in Isaiah 36, starting verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabbishakah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Hezekiah began his reign in 715 B.C. The events of this chapter took place in 701 B.C. The Assyrians had come down from the north. It says they had attacked all the cities of Judah. They had defeated them all, all their fortified cities. They had taken, in the northern kingdom, Samaria, and no one had been able to withstand them, and they finally came to Jerusalem, uh, where King Hezekiah was. And in Isaiah 10, 5 through 14, God had spoken of Assyria being the rod of his anger. He would use them like uh, a rod to discipline the nation, but he wouldn't destroy them completely. He was going to preserve them. It said in Isaiah 14 that they would find themselves, these Assyrians who came down with great pride and arrogance and power, they would be defeated on the hills of Jerusalem. This is what God had said before. So this is many years prior. In Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. Now, wouldn't it be great to think something and actually have it happen? Like whatever you thought, you had the power to actually just have it happen. And God says, that's how it is for me. The things that I think, I do. They are done. That's how powerful God is. Easier for us, for us to think, like sometimes I can't even think of a good solution to a problem. Ever been there? Where there's this problem that's such, it's so complex, it's so difficult, and we realize that, well, if this happened, well, it'd have this effect, and well, there's really no good solution to this problem. But with God, He knows the solution, and He, He simply does it. What is good? So as God had said, Assyrians invaded Israel, they besieged Jerusalem, and this Rabbishakah, his general, he is the mouthpiece of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and they are demanding the surrender of Jerusalem. Now, the place where this happened is very significant. It's the same place, and in Isaiah 7, 
33 years earlier by the aqueduct of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, Isaiah spoke to King Ahaz about his fears of the Syrians who were coming. And he said, I'm going to defeat the Syrians. Don't worry about Ephraim and the Syria and this, this uh, pact they've made to destroy you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to destroy them. In Isaiah 22, the prophet rebuked King Hezekiah because the Assyrians were coming and they were very focused on uh, fixing their defenses and their armor and their, their walls and their water supply and they forgot to look to God. They were looking to all these ways to protect themselves, to fight this battle they couldn't win and God was saying, guys, you need to, don't forget about me. The only way you can win is if I'm on your side. So seek me. Don't seek after your defenses. Don't try to figure this out on your own. And that's pretty much our tendency at times, where we are looking to, how can I defend myself? How can I protect myself? How can I be proved right and come away clean from the situation instead of looking to God? And so the stage is set. This is a battle they could not win, the people of Jerusalem, but they were going to try. They were going to do their best. So we see at the place where God promised salvation in Isaiah 7, the same place is where now the Rabbishakah stands and he begins to speak against God and his people to oppose what God has said. Verse 3, And Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder came out to him. Then the Rebshakah said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? So Eliakim, Shebna, Joah, they went to speak to the Rabshakeh, the general of the Assyrian host. He was an emissary and he had a message and he says, Okay, King Hezekiah, thus says the great king of Assyria, much greater than you, obviously. And he said it very loud for everyone to hear. We'll see as we continue through the passage. He didn't just want to talk to these ambassadors. He wanted to strike fear into everyone's hearts. Now, Sennacherib, the king, he had made a deal. He said, hey, if you give me all this gold and silver, we'll leave you alone. And Hezekiah plundered the... The, the gold off the temple doors, off the pillars. He had taken all the money from the treasury to pay him, and Assyrians showed up anyway. They weren't planning on peace. So they greatly impoverished themselves to try to pay for peace. It didn't work out, and now the Assyrians are there threatening, and they say, you need to, you need to surrender. The enemy came just the same. And Rebshakeh wondered, what could make you so bold to think you can fight against us? Are you waiting for, for help from Egypt? Egypt can't help you. And there is truth in what he said. 
Egypt was not able to help them in this time, and he uses this analogy. He says, Egypt is like a reed. It's like a pointy stick that if you lean on it to try to support your weight, it's just going to stab into your hand. It's just going to damage you. There's no help coming to you from Egypt. And that's true. Compared to God, everything that we lean on is like a broken reed. If we're looking to our finances, if we're looking to our health, if anything other than God to support us and to help us, it is going to only wound us, make us weak to fight, make us weak for labor. Because in those days, if your hand was pierced through, you weren't good for much. So it's a good thing to consider, what do we lean on in hard times, when things are difficult? And how has that worked out in the past? Grief, sorrow, pain? That's my background. So Rabshakeh then makes a second point, and in doing so, he reveals an ignorance of God. He spoke truth again in that Hezekiah did remove many idols, many high places and altars. We read this in 2 Chronicles 30.14 and 2 Chronicles 31.1. But what he did was he reduced God to the level of a powerless idol, a nothing, something that had no power. The pagan mindset was, The more gods, the better. You've got a god for this, and you've got a god for that. And um, if this god's not working, well, get a different one. The more gods, the merrier, really, because if you just tick the right box, then you'll have good crops, and then your animals will reproduce well, and, and you'll have financial wealth and prosperity. And so they had all these different gods for different things. And so in Rabshakeh's mind, hey, you've got rid of all your gods, God, he's, there's only one place to worship God. How can you win? Who's going to fight for you? We've defeated everybody else, and now you think you can stand up against us. You're not going to surrender? Now, the truth is, God's not confined to a temple made with hands. He is God over everything. The King of kings and Lord of lords. The Syrians learned this in 1 Kings 20. This is a great story. The, the king of Israel had defeated the Syrians. And they said, well, I guess they defeated us. How did, how did they win? Well, maybe because their God is the God of the hills. Next time, let's try to fight in the plain. Our God will be better in the plain than in the, the hills. Because they've got the hills. We'll give them that. But the plains, we'll beat them. And then God said, hey, I'm going to beat them again so that you know that I am the Lord. You know, and he's talking to his people. So my people know I'm the God of the hills. I'm the God of the plains. I'm the God of the valleys. I'm the God of the mountains. I'm the God of the whole universe. There's no one too difficult for me. And the Syrians did not come back into Israel after that for quite a while. So the Rabshakeh, he's telling the ambassador of Egypt, it's a false hope. King Hezekiah, he sabotaged your chance at victory. He's removed all your altars. Notice that the things the Rabshakeh said, there's an element of truth in them. There was no hope in Egypt, and Hezekiah had removed the altars. But he missed the point that God is not like other gods, and he was able to deliver them. And Satan will always use this tactic. He'll mix in some truth with a lie. He did this with Eve. He did this with Jesus when he quoted the scripture at him. He tried to make Jesus disobey by following the Bible. But Jesus 
He did the wise thing. Eve fell for the trick. Jesus answered with scripture. He said, it is written. And that's what we need to do. No matter if you find yourself on a mountaintop, just a a great experience, things are going well, or you're in a valley of depression, know that God is still God in either place. No matter if you're outside the walls or you're inside the walls being besieged, God, in him there is hope. There is help. He is not like other gods. Regardless of your circumstances, he has great power and love for us. Verse 8. Now therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So he demands the unconditional surrender. He taunts them with a lack of their military might. He knew they were low on resources, that they didn't have the ability to fight. They didn't even have the trained men to, if he, he says, if I gave you horses, it's like if I gave you tanks, you wouldn't have enough men to drive them. He's like, you can't fight against me. Even the least of my captains, they could just push you over. You're nothing before us. And then came the clincher. He says, God is telling me to fight you, and it's God's will that I destroy you. They had put their hope in God. They were just hoping that they would somehow, some way have a miraculous salvation. And then he says, oh, and, and God's against you, by the way. He's called me and he's told me to attack you. Again, true to an extent, but not fully. So he disarmed, he dis- demoralized them. He said, there's no help coming. God has forsaken you. You don't have the resources and men. And God's actually against you. He's on my side, not yours. And this brings us to a point, a very important one. The Rabshak is going through all this because he would rather the people and the king surrender rather than fight. He didn't want them to fight. Now, the devil's not keen to fight against God because that's not a fight he can win. But if he, through lies and deceit, can cause people to lose faith in God and focus on their insufficiency, their inability, their failures in the past... He can make Christians give up. He's very good at attacking us when we are vulnerable. He notices when our shield of faith drops for just a few moments. He knows how to zone in to our hearts and our minds. He strikes without mercy to condemn us, to make us afraid, to make us worried. After we're born again, we're still plagued often. We're prone to unbelief. Doubting, bitterness, and folly. If you ever watched The Hobbit, when Smaug the Terrible is killed, he had one missing scale, right? Right around here. And that was the one area that Bard targeted with the arrow. It was his only area of weakness, and he went right for it. And the enemy is able to discern our weaknesses by casual observation. And he will strike at that one thing. He knows that we're prone to worry. 
He knows we're, we're, we're prone to fear or anger or resentment, and he will nail us in that one spot. You know how you can push other people's buttons you know well? Hmm. You, you can push buttons. You can use other people to push your buttons. The scriptures say we're not to provide the enemy of our souls an opportunity to influence us. If you could turn to Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. And I don't say this so we'd be preoccupied with um, trying to discern if everything we face is a satanic attack. But what I am saying is that we need to be mindful of the enemy's devices and his, his schemes to be prepared. Ephesians 4.26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. There's nothing wrong in itself with being angry. But because of this verse, we could use it to justify anger, couldn't we? Because it says, be angry and do not sin. So there is a time where we can be angry without sin. But the reality is, as a fallen human being, quite often my anger, unbridled and unrestrained, will go into great sin, much greater. And so then he says, nor give place to the devil. If I'm going, if I am stewing in my anger, and I'm not repenting, I'm not admitting that I am wrong in my heart, I am giving place, I'm giving an opportunity for the enemy to tempt me and to derail me from a walk of faith and be ensnared in sin yet again. If we give place to worry, if we give place to anger, we're like sitting ducks for the lion who roars against us and the enemy wants us to give up. He wants us to lay down our arms. He wants us to despair in our circumstances, to feel sorry for ourselves, to be angry at God, to refuse to repent. This is what he's working for. And when we surrender to sin, if we surrender to doubt, we cut ourselves off from God and the victory he has given us. He has given us victory. He wants us to lay down without a fight, and we often do. I was like, ah. Oh. I hate that. I don't even want to say that, but that's the reality. He wants us to give up without a fight, and often, not sometimes, often we do. Verse 11, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words? and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? So now he's just gone uh, pretty strong. The King James puts it even stronger than this. But Rabshak is talking loudly. There's a lot of people listening in, and they say, Hey, why don't you speak to us in Aramaic? We understand what you'd be saying. But the Rabshak knows very well that everyone understands Hebrew, and he wants to make them afraid. And he wants to strip them of their human dignity. And so he starts saying even more things like, hey, you guys are going to be eating and drinking your own waste soon. That, that's pretty confronting. He's turning up the volume. He wants to humiliate them, degrade them, to wear them down. 
He continues in verse 13. Then the Rebshakeh stood up and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you shall eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So now, Rabshakeh, he completely disregards the ambassadors, and now he's just talking to everyone. He's saying, listen to the words of the great king of Assyria. he, He said, King Hezekiah is trying to trick you. He is unable to help you. Don't listen to your king, and there's no hope of salvation from God. He went from, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, to don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, to don't listen to Hezekiah. He just keeps going further and further down the line with every statement. Reminds me of Satan's tactic in the Garden of Eden. First, he questions God's word. Has God really said you shall not eat from every tree? To opposing God's word and saying, you shall not die. Then the Rebbe he makes promises on behalf of the king. And he talks about the benefits. If you'll just surrender, if you'll just lay down your arms, if you'll just open the gates and let us in, I'm going to give you property, food, clean water. You'll have your own cistern, your own vine. Think of it. So he's painting this picture. It's quite a better picture than eating and drinking sewage, right? I mean, hey, not not a bad I mean, if you had to weigh the two, I'd rather my own vine and cistern, just personally. I mean, you'd have to leave Jerusalem, but hey, you're going to a land that's not war-torn. You'll have to leave your inheritance, but man, it's a good land that you're going into. God had already given them a good land. Now place yourself in the position of the men on the wall. You're hearing this all go down. The ambassadors aren't saying much, and this Assyrian guy is just letting them have it threatening them, putting doubt and fear in your mind. Admittedly, there, were tr- there was truth in what he said. Hezekiah didn't have the, man, the manpower or the, the tools to defeat the Assyrians. They'd beaten everybody. And all those assurances would be a welcome prospect. Well, they're not going to kill us. They're going to give us a good land, and there's a future for us. I mean, we'll, it'll be tough at the beginning, but, you know, we'll make do. Yet a wise man would point out the Assyrians had already lied. They had already been deceitful. They could not be trusted. For the people of Israel, the words of the Rabshakeh had a hollow ring to them because they still feared their king. They knew who their king was, and it wasn't the king of Assyria. They weren't going to fall for it. And we too must come to this point that we know our king, And we have decided to trust and obey our king, even if it means our death. That's the kind of resolute approach that we must have in following Jesus Christ. I know who my king is. 
And you must decide who your king is, who is going to rule you, who you are going to listen to, and who you will obey. We need to be resolute in recognizing Christ and holding fast to his word, no matter what threats are upon our lives. The world says, well, it's okay to deny Jesus. He's a God of love, right? He forgives. No need to suffer needlessly by taking an unpopular stand. God knows your heart. You see how those are mixed truth and lies together? And it sounds good when we're in the midst of the trial. And we can get away from the heat. But we cannot deny our Savior. We have to obey Him and follow Him. Those words drip with the poison of unbelief. The world doesn't believe it's important to hold to the Scriptures as the literal God-breathed Word. They say, well, we're fine with seeing the Bible as a corrupted storybook with some good mixed among the superstitious, archaic, and outdated ideas that appeal to a weak mind. That's okay for you, but don't put that upon me or how I should live. Think about this. If the men of Israel surrendered before the king of Assyria, they made themselves enemies with King Hezekiah. They couldn't have it both ways. They either needed to be loyal and faithful and obedient to Hezekiah, who was their king, or the king of Assyria. They needed to choose. And we need to decide as Christians we can't make peace with sin or this world without declaring war on God and placing ourselves under his judgment. So we need to decide who my king is, who am I going to trust, who am I going to obey. Let's also remember that we, unlike these people that were born there, as being born again, we have volunteered and chosen for Jesus to be our king. We made that choice. And it's a choice by his strength we can continue in. So, continuing, the Rabbishakah, he is not done. Verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. See the nerve of Rabshakeh here. He warns the people not to be persuaded by their king. Beware, he's warning them. Don't be tricked, guys. He boasted that all gods have been powerless to stop his advance, so why should your God be any different? That's just the thing. The God of Israel, the God who became flesh and dwelt among us, we have beheld his glory. He is not like any other God. He is the God over all. He is the one true God. He's not comparable to anyone else. Jesus Christ is a savior, a redeemer, a deliverer, and he's proved that through his life, his death, his resurrection, and that we can know him. You notice the people, though, they were silent. They didn't say anything because their king, King Hezekiah, said, do not answer him. Don't say anything. 
They didn't need to answer this unbeliever with anything. And this is a good lesson for us. Myers quoted as saying, Silence is our best reply to the allegations and taunts of our foes. Be still, O persecuted soul. Hand over thy cause to God. It is useless to argue, even in many cases to give explanations. Be still and commit thy cause to God. If we are silent in the face of taunting, it's not a sign of weakness if we do so in obedience to our king. Sometimes God says to us, do not answer him. We don't have to have the last word. God doesn't need us to protect him. We need to give an answer for the faith that's within us, be faithful to do that. But we don't have to respond to that that, uh, inflammatory comment. We don't have to have the last word. We can leave that to God. He's the one who's going to be around a lot longer than me on this earth. right? He's the first and the last. He can have the last word. He can say it. He'll say it in the right way, in the right time. After this interaction, the ambassadors return to their king. It says with their clothes torn, it was a sign of grief. After hearing this blasphemy, after thinking about, oh man, everybody heard that. I wonder what they're thinking. Because a king, he can only really defend his lands if the people are with him. Right? If all the people get turned aside and they're not willing to fight for their king, then the king is pretty powerless. And so these ambassadors are are likely very concerned about the morale of the people. Isaiah 37, verse 1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rebshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. The emissaries come back. They talk to King Hezekiah. He also tears his clothes, and he puts on sackcloth, a sign of mourning. His efforts had failed. He had tried diplomacy. He had tried to pay them off. He had tried everything to try to prevent this war, and yet they're at the gates, and they are they're thirsty for blood. They're taunting, insulting God, trying to strike fear in the hearts of the people. And what does he do? Does he run out and try to do damage control and get the morale of the people? Say, okay, well, you know what? Don't listen to that guy. He doesn't. It says he went into the house of the Lord. That's his first and really only response. He's mourning and he goes into the house of the Lord. This is so important. He went to God and he sent a message by the hand of his servants to to Isaiah, and he said, pray for us. Pray that God would hear the words that have been spoken, and he will rebuke. He will answer, because we need God. He felt powerless to do anything. He compared himself to a man who's watching someone give birth, and he knows something's going very wrong with this delivery, but there's nothing he can do to save that baby. 
or the life of the mother, it's going very badly for everyone, and there's nothing you can do. And he says, man, we're coming to the birth, and I'm powerless. There's no strength to give birth. It's not happening. It should have happened. It's not. And that must be a horrible feeling to, to see someone in pain and to know that lives are hanging in the balance and you can't do a thing about it. And I think we can feel like that sometimes in a very real sense. Satan would love for us to believe that prayer is useless, that there's no power in it. And he says, like, what's the use of praying? What good has come of it? See all the suffering in the world? How can you do anything about this? Why would God do anything to intervene since you're under judgment anyhow? Again, mixing truth with lies to an aim of doubt, not faith. And the sad thing is we can listen to those doubts and we can willingly lay down our greatest weapons to stand, which are the word of God and prayer, to forsake those two things, to just lay down our arms and go, yeah, powerless, you're right, might as well give up. And I'm, I was convicted this week when I, when I do read of problems in the world and I'm like, oh man, that's bad. And I move on to the next problem. Oh, that's bad too. And oh, wow. And, and you read all these problems, but I was like, how many of those did I actually take even a minute to pray about? We could just keep scrolling. But do we actually care enough? Like you hear that someone's hurt. Do we pray for them? Do we pray for what we might do? How God would want us to pray? How he would want us to respond to what's going on in another part of the world that God is very much present and in control of and that he can affect the people in the situation there and yet prayer is not prayed. And it's like, let's turn God loose. Let's bring him into all these dark places of the world and all these tragedies that are around us and allow him to show his glory and to pray for our enemies. When we see the problems in the world, in our family, in the news, do we become combative or angry or defensive, afraid or silent? When we're troubled, we're to run to God immediately. And that's what King Hezekiah did. Matthew Henry, I like what he wrote in his commentary. He says, prayer is the midwife of mercy that helps to bring it forth. Prayer as the midwife of mercy. And I'm no expert in childbirth. I need a midwife around. If, if you know, like when Laura gave birth. And prayer brings forth God's grace and mercy. When there seems to be no grace and no mercy, prayer is that midwife that helps bring it forth. It's a good practical thing. He also observed the best way to baffle the malicious designs of our enemies against us is to be driven by them to God and to our duty. Rabshakeh intended to frighten Hezekiah from the Lord, but it proves that he frightens him to the Lord. The wind, instead of forcing, forcing the traveler's coat from him, makes him wrap it the closer about him. So when we're in trouble, when we're having difficulties, do we run from the Lord or do we run to the Lord? When you find yourself at a loss, do you tend to cave to the enemy's demands to surrender or take the matter straight to Jesus? 
Sometimes we're more interested in creating awareness of our need to men rather than to God. If we mourn over a headline, let us also pray over them. Verse 5, So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him. He shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. God gives through Isaiah this immediate answer. He says, please pray for us. And he says, thus says the Lord. Now, when when you hear thus says the Lord, who are you going to listen to more? The great king of Assyria or what God says? And here, the, the hope and the comfort, the consolation is found in listening to what God says. That's always the case. He says, don't be afraid of anything you just heard. All that, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. They've uttered blasphemy against me. I'll respond to it in due time in my way. They've tried to uh, spread rumors in this land I am going and trying to deceive you. I am going to deceive him. He's going to hear about a rumor and head home. He's trying to put fear in your hearts. He'll have fear and he'll have to return. And the sword he will, it will come to him in his own land. So when he thinks he's in safety and peace, he will be destroyed. So what we sow, we will also reap. Our God is a refuge. He is a help in time of trouble. Not one word of blasphemy spoken against him will fall to the ground. He knows it. He will respond to it in his time. So take courage, O Christian, no matter how the heathen rage, Regardless of laws or people or governments or claims that oppose the righteousness of God, the persecution of the church, we are children of a good king that we can trust, who is also our father, who loves us with an everlasting love. He will answer in due time. He will avenge. Let the world mourn. Let let the world scoff at us. Let them make fun of us for believing the Bible. That's fine. But let's not fall for their deceptions. Let's not fall for their deceit. Let's not cave into their demands. Let's stand strong on the foundation of God's word and on Jesus Christ. He's the one who has raised us from death to life. He's the one who's promised eternal life with him. Let Rabishakas, wherever they are, shout themselves hoarse. We will not be afraid because God has said, Thus says the Lord. And I love that about Jesus. He never said, thus says the Lord. He says, it's been written, quoting the law, and then saying, but I say unto you, God made flesh, dwelt among us. If you could turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, verse 31. Let's read this passage together. This morning I just felt led to crack open this book I was reading as I was doing a little study. And uh, it's called Godspeed by Britt Merrick. I can't, I mean, I, I think it's a good book. I've just begun it. But listen to what he says here. 
It says, to have a biblical understanding of mission is to realize the Bible is a book about God, not about us. In truth, the Bible is the story of God's mission in the world as it unfolds throughout human history. Christianity gets fun when we understand our salvation through the perspective of who God is and what he's doing in the world. When we see the grand story of God's mission to redeem, restore, and heal humanity, it's a massive paradigm shift. We realize that life is not about us or what we want to do. It's about what God does. And we see that with his people here. We see that God's word is true, that that's exactly what would happen. The rumor would come and Rabshakeh would leave, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He gives that list there in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And he says, yet in all these things, in them, we pray that those things wouldn't happen. But he's saying, in all those things, you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ who loves you, and you cannot be separated by his love. From it, Nothing can separate you from his love. And I love, he says, verse 38, for I am persuaded. He didn't say, I think. He says, I persuaded. I know it to be true. He had experienced this. And the question is, are you so persuaded? The world and the devil, even our flesh, sometimes... We want to give up. We want to give in because we think it'll make our lives easier. But realize that in dying to self, to follow Jesus, we win. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So take courage, brothers and sisters. We have a great king and a father who loves us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Thank you that you are a holy, awesome God. Nothing is too hard for you. Even when King Hezekiah and his people were surrounded by an enemy they could not defeat, Lord, you, you heard what was said, you knew how the people felt, and you answered from heaven instantly when they came to you. Lord, we ask that you would do the same for us, that when we are worried and afraid, when our enemies seem to surround us on every side and we don't have an answer, Lord, help us to run to you. Help us to be silent before the unbelievers who would mock and taunt us 
and that we would take confidence in you, being obedient to what you've said, that we would give an answer in due season. But Lord, we wouldn't be drawn into petty quarrels and folly. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you high and lifted up, glorious and powerful, our King, our Savior, our God, a God unlike any other God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who breathed life into these dead souls and who gives us eternity with you. Lord, I pray that we would learn and apply your truth to our lives today, that we might live in the way that pleases you and be fruitful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.